No, you're, you're striving for the achievement of excellence in all, the, all areas. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudoua, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So last week, we took a little stroll down memory lane, for you anyway. Yes, yes. Back in your 20s, you were at the Institute for Achievement of Human Potential, Mm -hmm. institutes, plural. And I happen to know that our name, the Institute for Excellence in Writing, is borrowed from that. Yes, and it really is a good thing, in retrospect, that I didn't stick with my first idea, which was Institute for the Achievement of Excellence in Writing. Right, right. Well, that would have certainly attached us to that organization. Probably, for anyone who would know. Yeah. But yes, no, but the the IEW, you know, that was, and, you know, part of the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential idea was really excellence in everything, Mm -hmm. you know, that you don't, you don't stop and be satisfied with, okay, this is all right, this is okay, this is good enough. Mm-hmm. No, you're, you're striving mm-hmm. for the achievement of excellence mm-hmm. in all, the, all areas. Mm-hmm. And that's true whether you are a Down syndrome young person mm-hmm. who may or may not ever learn to read or write, but you can still be the best that you can be. Right which is way better than if you didn't step on that path. And also, you know, it has to do with the accelerated kids, you know, in that school. Uh, they were doing stuff that would look somewhat extraordinary mm-hmm. to any observer of an individual child. But when you see the entire group of children doing that, then you come to a realization that it's not talent, as you know, Suzuki tried to point out. You know, yeah, there's inborn aptitude, mm-hmm. but talent is not a given. You can create talent. You can develop talent. Mm. All children can learn to play the violin. Mm-hmm. All children can be physically, physiologically, and intellectually excellent. And uh, so that's kind of what the Institutes was all about, is always getting, always improving, and mm-hmm. always striving for better ways that everyone can improve. So it's a very positive place, mm-hmm. you know, to work and live and mm-hmm. be. It was, a, a like I said last time, it was a great three years of my life. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And so I, while listening to what you had said, you mentioned six areas of ways we can be focused on in helping achieve human potential. But then, so I'd, I'd like to have you tell, tell more about those areas. But as you describe them, I'd love to have those parents and teachers and grandparents 
here, what are some practical things they could be doing either with their brain injured children or with their, you know, normal children? I've heard you once say that all children are brain injured. It's just a matter of degree and location. Degree and location. Yeah, and that's what Glenn Doman would say is, you know, all children are brain injured, Mm -hmm. all of us, Mm -hmm. you know. It's just a matter of degree and location because it's a spectrum. Mm-hmm. On one side of the spectrum, you would have neurologically flawless. Mm-hmm. There's no one Mm-mm. without some minor brain right. injuries somewhere, mm-hmm. prenatal, neonatal, postnatal, you know, and at older age, you, know, you get a concussion. So on one end of the spectrum, there's nobody neurologically flawless. And on the other spectrum is comatose, mm-hmm. right? So everyone who's not dead or comatose is somewhere between these two extremes. Right, right. And then the question is, where in the brain and to what degree? Mm-hmm. We um, have many, many stories of people who were completely paralyzed, right? Quadriplegic. And, and yet had brilliant minds. Mm-hmm. Sure. Due to due to brain injury mm-hmm. or a disease uh, that progressed in that direction, mm-hmm. and so we have to be, you know, aware that these different pathways can be more or less, or sometimes almost unaffected. Uh, but we'll look at them. There's uh, the original developmental profile had six areas, and then uh, our friends uh, Matthew and Carol Newell uh, they added a seventh. Uh, for good reason. Mm-hmm. But uh, three are the physical or what we might call the motor okay. pathways. And three are the sensory pathways. Okay. So, you know, the the first and most obvious motor pathway is mobility, right? And so that is, like we said, moving from immobile to crawling on the belly to creeping on hands and knees to walking with uh holding on to something, to walking without holding on to something, and then to running and actually becoming airborne. And that, <laughs> you know, and so that's that's the pathway mm-hmm. that kids get to, usually within the, you know, first five or six years. Mm-hmm. And and those things correspond then to the brain areas. So the, the crawling on the belly corresponds with the, the pons or the lower brain. And then the creeping on hands and knees corresponds with the midbrain. And then the, uh, you know, walking corresponds with the lower cortex and then the running with the higher cortex. So then that would be the first motor pathway. So if you want to specifically allow children a faster and more solid neurological development in that mobility area, then you would create an environment as well as have activities you could either encourage or enforce Mm -hmm. that would do those things. Now, if you have an older child and you detect a midbrain injury, such as a lack of convergence of vision or a stuttering problem, which Mm -hmm. would indicate a a laterality issue, you might go back and take that child, even though they can walk and run, and put them on a floor program Mm -hmm. of crawling and creeping to strengthen those areas of the brain through the mobility pathway that carries over then into the other pathways. So let's look at our lives Mm -hmm. as grandparents. And you have a child who is not yet walking yet, Mm -hmm. a grandchild, and as do I. 
my four-month-old grandson is not walking yet. Though I must admit, I don't know if it's because of the name Walker or whatever, but all of my kids and all of my grandchildren walked before they were one year old. And I can we just camp there just for a second and talk about the importance of these neurological stages and how parents can make sure that they go through them so that they don't have midbrain problems later on. Well, you know, the most important thing is opportunity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Glenn Doman went even so far as to point out that in ancient cultures, the most advanced of those cultures that had reading and writing had floors that were safe. And so if you look at the areas where there were safe floors for children to be on the floor and creep and crawl and then stand up and walk, they had a higher level of reading and writing for the whole culture. Mm -hmm. And if you look at places where there were no floors, right, and worse, where there were dangerous things on the ground Mm -hmm. and, you know, parents essentially had to carry children most of the time to keep them safe. Mm -hmm you don't see anywhere near the same levels of, of reading and writing hmm. developing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's from a huge, vast, almost uh, evolutionary perspective, if you think about evolution not as macro but as the development of human mm-hmm. you know, capacities over time. Uh, so a grandparent, you know, one thing is to just spend time on the floor, which is increasingly difficult <laughs> as yes. a grandparent. <laughs> yeah. You know, and just, you know, get down on the floor with a baby. The The biggest reason a baby doesn't want to be on the floor is everybody else is not on mm-hmm, the floor. Mm-hmm. And so I want to be up. I want mm-hmm. to see. I want you mm-hmm. know, to know what's going on. Uh, so, you know, creating an environment where you can actually just lay on the floor with a with a baby who's mm-hmm. learning to crawl. And then we do this kind of thing naturally. We play games and put something out there. Okay, go get it because mm-hmm. we want to see them, mm-hmm. you know, start to try and move their arms and get from, you know, three inches here to three inches there. Mm-hmm. And and also, you know, Glenn talked a lot about the importance of eliminating, if not eliminate entirely, then minimize those things that would not allow for floor time. So um, putting the child and getting them used to being in a, you know, a walker uh, where they can kind of be supported, but roll around by pushing their feet. This isn't actually helpful neurologically or physiologically because it's not a natural condition. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, parents like that because the baby's happy and, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're there and they're starting to walk and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or too much time in a, you know, in a bouncy chair. If you can acclimate a child to be happy on the floor as soon as possible, that child will develop in most cases, mobility in a more solid, neurologically sound, and quicker way. Mm -hmm. And so ironically, uh, like many things, the harder you try to get a child to walk, the more likely you're interfering with that natural process. Whereas if you just don't worry about it, keep them on the floor, watch them really get good and fast on their hands and knees, then... They may not walk as early, but they'll come into mm-hmm. that cortical phase with a more well-organized midbrain. Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, if I had a, a diagram, I could draw it for you. But you know how the cortex has two hemispheres. Mm-hmm. 
and you can actually stick a, you know, I wouldn't recommend this, but you could <laughs> put, you know, a ruler or a thin thing in between the cortices mm. and where it would stop would be the top of the midbrain or the corpus callosum, which mm-hmm. is the area that connects the two hemispheres. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting is as adults, we do lots of things that require left, right, precise left, right coordination. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything as simple as, you know, tying your shoe to very complex things you might find in the world of music or sports. Mm-hmm. And all of that has to go through the corpus callosum. So when one side of the cortex and another side of the cortex cooperate, all that information is passing through. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that the right hemisphere of the brain controls cortical activity in the left side of the body Mm. and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So that's where we get that crossing Mm. right to left, right to left. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, some people discovered you can create kind of a a fine tuning of this by crossing the midline. Mm. And so, you know, go way back to the book, uh, you know, Educational Kinesiology for Kids. And it talks about train your brain by moving your body a certain way. Mm -hmm. And then there's people that, you know, we're familiar with, Diane Craft, some of those people Mm -hmm. who, you know, continued to develop those ideas. Mm -hmm. I would look at that as being kind of a a tune-up. Glenn and and his team looked at that as being um, not happening at a root level. So if you kind of force your cortex to do a midbrain activity, it doesn't necessarily change the midbrain. Mm. Whereas if you do the midbrain activity, that can change the brain. Mm-hmm. And that's why rather than just standing up and doing cross the midline activities, uh, which may have some value, if you want to make a deeper physiological change to the structure of the midbrain, you get on your hands and knees. And crawl for how, how long did you? Well, the ideal, the, the most common program uh, would be to gradually build up you know, over months, many, many months, to 1,600 meters or one mile of creeping on hands and knees each day. Yep. And then uh, 400 meters, which would be a quarter mile of crawling on the belly. Right. And, you know, depending on the age and the speed and the attentiveness and the motivational system, you know, that can take anywhere from, you know, half an hour to many hours. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, you know, you look at Okay, now when a child starts to walk, Mm -hmm. you know, you want to give them abundant opportunity to be able to walk for long distances. So, Mm -hmm. you know, getting outside on a slight hill gives a child a little momentum and they build that happening and then, you know, more running. And then as running happens, cortical organization occurs as well as uh, positive respiratory patterning. So I just have to say this because our listeners did not see what you did with your hands when you said a slight hill. Do you want the children going up the hill or down or the hill? Just slightly down. Yes. So they, okay. get, they get a little bit of momentum. You know, and they <laughs> So they'll start go. running. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, you don't want it to be so steep they fall on their nose. Right. But, exactly. Uh, you know, because part of the benefit of the physical program, mm-hmm. creeping, crawling, uh, especially overhead ladder, brachiation, and then walking, running, and then um, aerobic running mm-hmm. um, is that it increases lung capacity. Mm-hmm. Almost all brain-injured children have poor breathing. Mm. 
you know, all brain injury is caused by a lack of oxygen to brain cells. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, how and where that happens can differ. Sure. Um, but but all of all of it is caused by lack of oxygen. So part of it, a very important approach to helping the brain heal is abundant oxygen supply. Mm-hmm. And so there's active respiratory patterning, which include all those exercises. So by running long distance, I'm gradually increasing my ability to take in, mm-hmm. retain, use, and expel mm-hmm. air, air. Right. Together with that, <clears throat> the institutes used passive respiratory patterning, and there was both positive and negative, meaning there would be devices that would kind of squeeze the chest and let it go, and on the let go, there would be more air coming in, as well as devices that would kind of suck the chest out. And you'd have to lie in these things for a certain period of time, kind of suck the chest out, and that would allow more oxygen to come in. Mm-hmm. So you're actually manipulating the, the lung capacity by the physical equipment and activity hmm. uh, that you're doing. And they also used uh, masking, which is a form of creating a higher level of oxygen coming to the capillaries and to the brain. So here's the interesting phenomenon. The higher percentage of carbon dioxide that you breathe, mm-hmm. the, the more open your, your capillaries become. Hmm. So you actually get more blood to the cells um, that are fed by the capillaries as you start to rebreathe carbon dioxide. Hmm. Now, you're getting less oxygen in the air. Right. Right. Yep. Uh, and so, the more oxygen, the capillaries tighten up a little bit. The less oxygen, the more carbon dioxide. The response is the capillaries open up a little bit. Trying to get more oxygen. Trying to get more oxygen. So, what they'll do is they'll put on a mask and have the child rebreathe their own carbon dioxide. carbon dioxide for a certain number of seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, usually starting very low, fifteen, mm-hmm. twenty working up maybe to 30 or a minute. Mm-hmm. And I know I had to do this with the students in mm-hmm. the School for Human Development. Mm-hmm. And so it happens by the end of that time, two things have occurred. You're taking deeper breaths because you're naturally just trying to get more oxygen. Mm-hmm. And your capillaries have expanded because you have a higher concentration of carbon dioxide. Right. When you take off the mask, you have a period of breathing more deeply. So now you're getting more oxygen. The capillaries are still open for a period of time. So you're actually getting more oxygen to your cells and to your brain in particular Hmm. as a result of doing this. And so uh, a masking program like that, you know, they would start short periods of time, uh, you know, maybe 30 times a day uh, and then work up to doing, say, a longer period of time, like a minute. Um, maybe 90 or 120 times a day. And so that would be gradually over time building up. And so that was a form of respiratory patterning Mm -hmm. uh, that also helped to bring more oxygen to the body. But you think of doing something like that 120 times a day, you're basically doing it once every five minutes. Right, exactly. You know, for your whole day. Right. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that was one aspect of physiological Okay. That, of course, respiration affects very profoundly language because speaking is a coordination 
between uh, all of the parts of the body that make sounds right. and different make different sounds, as well as having the sufficient you know respiratory capacity to take a breath, say something, mm-hmm. and regulate your breath accordingly, mm-hmm. and then take another breath. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned the young man who we cast in the role of soothsayer in Julius Caesar. Yes, yes. And you know that was part of. He, he was a phenomenal athlete. He could outrun anyone. But, you know, he had definite problems with that regulation of the breath mm. until it moved into the singing part of his brain, in which case he could handle it differently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, all sorts of things you can't necessarily explain but are right. fascinating to observe. Right. So uh, then what are the levels of speech? You know, there's meaningful sound, expressing emotion, you know, and that's all midbrain pawns and midbrain hmm. stuff. Hmm. And then you hit the cortex and you get, you know, uh, two to three words, you know, distinguishable words. And then there's numbers and then you get up to six years old and you have pretty much a complete vocabulary. Mm-hmm. So there's that pathway as mm-hmm. well. And they had language development programs. One of the things that I um, always enjoyed teaching parents because it was so kind of a beautiful breakthrough moment was uh, a particular language development program where you would take a short little two-line poem or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hey, diddle, diddle, the cat and the fiddle, the cow jumped over the moon, the little little dog laughed to see such sport, and the dish ran away with the spoon. Okay, so this particular program would involve saying that poem many, many times Mm -hmm. a day for many, many days Mm -hmm. to a child. Now, this is a child who basically doesn't speak. Okay. Right? And then what you would do is you would say the whole thing except for the very last word. And the dish ran away with the, and then you stop. And what happens is when we have a memorized pattern like that, Mm -hmm. it's just human nature to want to complete the pattern. Exactly. So the child's brain is just striving to say that last word. But it's interesting. It may take quite a bit of time for that to come out. Mm, mm-hmm. In fact, I remember stories of parents saying two minutes later, their child said, boo. Oh, uh-huh. And they could put the two and two together. Yeah. But it took that long for mm-hmm. the process. So there's, you know, that, and that's kind of a beginning into poetry mm-hmm. memorization, right. which is hugely beneficial, you know, especially to the higher level kids, mm-hmm. the higher level autistic kids, the the ones with a lot of ADD or HD memorizing just kind of forces them to like hold thoughts in mm-hmm. their brain for a longer period of time, mm-hmm. be attentive to detail. The higher functioning um, Down syndrome kids with language, you know, and even the children who have disabilities that cause them to not be able to speak, mm-hmm. it's still a fact where they can recite in their mind. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. they can actually hear language. They just can't make language that they can, that other people can hear in the same way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, then the third of the motor pathways would be um, the manual pathway. Okay. And so there are certain landmarks along that way, such as the cortical opposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you see a child using a fingertip and a thumb, you know that it's called cortical act 
cortical opposition because it's a distinctly cortical activity oh, interesting. that children mm-hmm. are likely to do mm-hmm. in that same period of time when they start walking, saying their first few words. They can now say okay to their parents. They can say okay, and they can also pick something up that mm-hmm. you know they can mm. put in their mouth. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you know, and then it moves up laterality development, and then of course it finishes with writing. Oh, okay. So writing is the highest neurological function that the cortex is on that pathway, on mm-hmm. that chart that they have. Okay. And so, you know, we had programs for, you know, writing mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. I know for a fact that Matt, Matt and Carol, with, you know, their families at the Family Hope Center, they strongly recommend IEW mm-hmm. writing mm-hmm. as well as our spelling program mm-hmm. for their um, high-functioning mm-hmm. uh, kids there. Uh, then on the sensory pathway, that's also divided into three, and then we have hearing and seeing and uh, tactile, mm-hmm. right, sense, mm-hmm. touch. And hearing, you know, um, goes from being able to have a startle reflex, mm-hmm. which most newborns have, right. but some brain-injured children don't have. Hmm. And, you know, I've actually seen you could, you know, I've actually done it where you would come up behind a child with, you know, a foghorn and blast the thing right behind their head and they don't, and it takes them 10 seconds to realize it happened. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's a very basic level of dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you're going all the way up to, you know, understanding language. And so there's everything in between mm-hmm. on, on that pathway. That's the auditory development. Sight, you, you get with kids who, you know, begin like a newborn, really can just see shapes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, – and the programs of treatment here are, you know, particularly interesting to me because it involves, you know, a high repetition of high contrast, mm-hmm. whether that's light shining in the eye on and off, on and off, you know, many times a day, or then it gets to cards that have large, bold, black or bright red geometric figures, and moving up, and of course, reading, corresponding with writing and uh, language use is at the top of that tactile. Uh, Matthew and Carol (coughs) added an emotional, and there's some just absolutely fascinating research to show how the taste and olfactory, in particular the sense of smell, is connected with emotional uh, development. Mm -hmm. So you very often find children who have extreme emotional problems will not have what we would consider a normal reaction to odors. They Mm -hmm. may be undersensitive or they may be hypersensitive Mm -hmm. and, by extension, taste. So, you know, you can actually, according to what they've discovered in just the last 20 years, you can actually help treat emotional problems with specific smell stimulations. Mm -hmm. Now, is it any particular smell or is it just smells in general, like expose your children to more? Yeah, I I think what you would have to learn and study that and Mm -hmm. and the Newells have a great online course. It's Mm -hmm. a video course that's Mm -hmm. available for parenting. I think it's still called License to Thrive. We can mm-hmm. double check that. But mm-hmm. I I never encountered that. That that whole idea of emotional and smell and relationship was just starting to be right. explored as I left that and moved right. on. 
but it's it's certainly fascinating. And uh, like I said, if if I were to meet a family and they say, I have a child who, you know, is clearly having these symptoms of brain injury in one of these particular areas, mm-hmm. what's the best thing I should do? What they're often asking me is, what curriculum should I buy? Sure. But what I'm saying is if you want to try to address the cause, mm-hmm. not just accommodate the symptoms, mm-hmm. then I'd go to the Family Hope Center, mm-hmm. take their whole course, mm-hmm. learn what you can, diagnose, and then create programs of treatment that can can fix the problem rather than just let's do it like people did it for years and yeah. say, okay, he's never going to change, so how do we just accommodate for that? Right, right. Well, Andrew, I, like you, am noticing that we're running out of time here, and I, but I, I think this has been so helpful for our listeners, not just because their parents, their teachers, their grandparents, and they want to help their children in these areas and maybe help them grow from a brain injury or maybe just to be smarter and better, faster, stronger, right? Isn't sure. that what we all want? But I think it's also fascinating to know that this is the foundation for all that we do here at the Institute for Excellence in Writing. Well, I wouldn't say necessarily the foundation, but there are so many things that I came to realize. Yeah. For example, you know, one of the first things that I was able to integrate was the Institute kind of coined the the phrase, if you will, frequency, intensity, and duration. Right. Which means number of repetitions, the strength of a stimulation, mm-hmm. and then the reinforcement over period of time. Mm-hmm. So when you write a program, whether it's a physical program or whether it's a sensory program uh, to develop you know, better hearing, there's always those variables. So frequency, you prescribe this, intensity, You prescribe this based on your diagnosis of progress. Mm -hmm. And so it changes over time. Well, you know, I started getting in the world of how do you help people help their kids learn to spell better. Mm -hmm. And immediately I'm aware that some kids are more auditorily organized Mm -hmm. than they are visually. In fact, most kids who have trouble spelling are going to fall in that category. Mm -hmm. They're going to be more visually disorganized than auditorily. Mm -hmm. So you shift to an auditory input method. Mm -hmm. If they're also auditorily confused, you look for a tactile, can you know, a kinesthetic input method such mm-hmm. as sign language, mm-hmm. and then the fact that, you know, to learn spelling words takes a different amount of repetition, right, uh, and intensity and duration. And I put that whole thing into that talk, spelling in the brain, right. I don't think I would ever have come up with such a useful talk mm-hmm. without my years of experience in Philadelphia. Right. So I wouldn't say that was the foundation of everything, right. but it certainly strengthens our uh, ability to organize and communicate ideas yep. that work. Yep, right. Well, I, for one, am grateful for your experiences there, as I'm sure a lot of people are, and uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. Yeah, no, I guess I have to go home and play on the floor with a one-year-old. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> Grandchild. Thanks so much for joining us. 
If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Pudua and the team at IEW, I thank you for allowing us to partner with you on your journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.